Welcome back to Computer Game Evolution, Episode 3.1. The long-term outlook has never been better. The time has come to dive into the decade I've been talking up since the very first introductory episode. It is an epic undertaking, it will take more than a year, so to help you get your bearings, this first series of episodes will be dealing with the most major events, general industry trends, the main game platforms of the period, and the like. It should give you the skeleton of the beast, then we'll start adding bits to it, and hopefully end up with a complete dinosaur. We'll start with the big one, the video game crash of 1983, though attaching a specific year to it is a bit risky. The crash is useful to know about, since it explains why so many companies we met in a previous season will not show up for this one, or will appear under a new management. Of course, the many creative people who worked at those companies are going to be rearranged in the industry too, banding together into new groups and founding their own enterprises. The funniest thing about the crash that devastated the American video game industry is that it wasn't triggered by any major external factors. There were no meteors falling, no Great Depression, no Sputnik, no oil crisis beyond the usual. And in the industry too, there wasn't a radically new generation of hardware like in 76-77, it was all business as usual. Except it turned out that the industry's ways of doing business were just really, really stupid. Take the arcades. Everything was great in the arcades. 1978 Space Invaders, 1979 Asteroids, 1980 Pac-Man, 1981 Donkey Kong, we'll get to that one this season. How can anything possibly go wrong in the arcade business? Well, here's how. The coin-op industry was making the news regularly now, even in the general press, due to how much money it kept raking in. This was the golden age of arcades, and every year a new cabinet broke the records of profitability. The natural response to this was that more people started thinking about opening their own arcade or supplementing the income of their already existing business by installing a few coin-op amusements. Those things basically printed money. Well, minted. They bought the cabinets, got them set up, and were ready to count quarters. And that's where many of them discovered that the quarters did not appear in the coin boxes by magic, but were rather deposited in them by a specific target audience, mostly young men. If there wasn't enough of those frequenting the place, the take was disappointing. Of course, at this point the installed cabinets would already be registered in statistics as just another batch in the thousands of new units appearing all across the country, clearly showing that the arcade business was booming and encouraging more fools to get in. And the number of these fools was growing as the popularity of arcades waned. It waned partly because the press kept beating the drum not just about the profits of the industry, but also about all the bad influence it had on the younger generation. We've seen the controversy around Gotcha, the outcry against Death Race, the bickering over Space Invaders, and in the early 80s it became a generalized grumbling about them video games spoiling the kids. It didn't help the matter that in 1982 someone died of a heart attack while playing Berserk, 
and the story of murderous games was too juicy for the press to pass up. The arcades got the reputation of being seedy places where bad or addicted kids hung out, secret gambling dens, and in some areas concerned citizen committees made local governments ban game arcades or limit children's access to them. Meanwhile, children themselves were growing not too eager to go to the arcades either. For them, the issue was not the reputation, but the total lack of variety. The only thing the industry loved more than big hits was cloning those hits and producing the clones in volume. So Pac-Man came out, and soon enough there were plenty of knockoffs flooding the halls, mixing together with countless Space Invaders clones and derivatives. Sure, if you check a database today, you'll find plenty of other, different games from this period, but how many of those did an average player see? Remember, in episode 2.1, when I was talking about Pong clones, Paddle Battle sold more than 20,000 units, and there were other clones selling just as much. Later in the episode, the quirky and offensive Death Race, after the media storm surrounding it, sold 3,000 units. The difference is an order of magnitude. Not counting clones, there were only a few coin-ops of the Golden Age that sold in the hundreds of thousand units, a few dozen selling in the tens of thousands, and then everything else reaching a few thousand units across the entire globe. So in the wild, the most common cabinets would offer a handful of big hits, and most of the rest would be the lesser hits, and you'd be lucky to get a choice of something different, matching your taste specifically, anywhere outside of a large gaming arcade. And on top of that, there were plenty of clones and derivative games, some of which could be as simple as literally Pac-Man, but about running away from the cops naked in Japan. There existed creative, transformative titles too, like Tempest, or, say, Centipede, released by Atari in 1981. Centipede was another one of the early video games aimed at women, though this time they did ask a woman to develop it. Programming was handled by Donna Bailey, under the guidance of Ed Logg, the guy who had programmed Asteroids. Centipede put a neat twist on the Space Invaders formula by replacing aliens with a centipede made up of multiple segments. The creepy crawly entered the screen at the top and moved sideways until it ran into the edge of the screen, or one of the mushrooms randomly scattered in the field. This seemed fairly simple and manageable until you shot it with your bug blaster cannon. The hit segment turned into a mushroom, the centipede split in two, the rear half bumped into the new obstacle and descended, while the front kept following its original path. Unless you shot them in the head or tail segments, every time they got hit, Centipede split into two faster targets. And this reminds me of nothing more than Asteroids, where your shot split rocks into smaller and faster fragments. Only in Centipede, your hits also left mushrooms behind, meaning that the next Centipede would hit obstacles and descend at you faster. The mushrooms could be destroyed, but it took multiple hits, you were not landing on your real enemies. Centipede did have depth to it, and let players figure it out on their own where to attack and where to clean up, the game sold tens of thousands of units, but... At the end of the day, it was yet another game about controlling a cannon at the bottom of the screen, shooting enemies coming from the top. Or as they were being colloquially called, shoot them up games. 
As the result, the underside of the golden age of arcades was far less shiny, and operators were getting increasingly disappointed by the dropping income already in 82. It was a slow burn, not quite crash levels of disappointment, but when the crash happened in the console market and attitudes to video games got even colder, American arcades suffered losses. Except another thing I mentioned in episode 2.1 was that during the downturn of late 74-75, operators established some means of minimizing their risks by buying on credit or trading cabinets in and other things like that. So when operators saw losses, it did not necessarily end with just them going out of business, because they could return the games, not bad games, just games nobody wanted, and that made their losses travel up the distribution chain all the way to the manufacturers. The arcades did not trigger the big crash, but when it did come, they exacerbated its consequences for many involved with them. Ironically, it seems that the least affected were the people who didn't expect much of video games, who only got a cabinet or two to liven up their bar or whatever. For them, the crash was not the problem at all, quite the opposite. When specialized arcades started going bankrupt and their hardware was being auctioned off for pennies, it happened to be the perfect time to pick up slightly dusty cabinets for an 80s gym lobby or for a diner to replace a broken-down jukebox. American video arcades were still around, but for the rest of the decade they would stay smaller, humbler, always ready to tell anyone careless enough to listen about the glory days of the Golden Age. Now, as I've just said, the crash originated in the console market, and in episode 2.8 we saw one of the reasons it went up in smoke. Activision setting the precedent for third-party console game publishers. And then Activision suffered for it, since the market got oversaturated with clones and rip-offs and other titles of poor quality, from companies appearing weekly and seeking to capitalize on the boom. And in 83, those games went straight to the $5 a piece bargain bins at store entrances. And consumers would come into those stores, see the bins, buy bags of games without going further in where $40 Activision hits were waiting on the shelves, leave, and never come back again because bargain bin games were either garbage, or the same games they already had, but with a few sprites changed. There are plenty of games like that today, too, but today there is the internet, buyer reviews, pictures, videos, and if you're really desperate, the gaming press. Back in the early 80s, electronic bulletin boards were still new, and you needed a microcomputer to access one anyway, and as for the press... The press was very... relaxed. Sure, it covered big titles from major companies, usually soon after the release date, but it was not quite the extension of corporate marketing the gaming press is now, the timing of reviews was not as tight. Sometimes the 80s press ran reviews of games released months earlier or the year before. Why rush? There weren't enough pages to cover all third-party releases flooding the shelves and the bins anyway, so even for fans of video games, buying a new title was like buying a pig in a poke. You get fooled once, twice, and the third time you just go into the store next door and buy a board game. Further eroding the confidence in the industry was the fact that even some of the games coming from the supposed leader in the field, Atari, were not reviewing particularly well because they were bad. We've seen how that came to be too. 
Under Nolan Bushnell, Atari was a company that focused heavily on releasing new stuff, since that was the only way they sought to outrun the jackals. The company fostered a culture of creativity and initiative, where developers felt rewarded and respected for coming up with the games that kept Atari afloat. They were pretty bad with money, though, always teetering on the brink of solvency, and when the Magnavox lawsuit incurred massive losses, Atari had to be saved by the sale to Warner, which in turn brought the new management in. Under Ray Kassar, Atari got its financing in order and started running massive marketing campaigns. And for a few brief years, Atari had the best of both worlds. Staff brimming with creativity, boosted by corporate planning and marketing. Atari was unstoppable. In 1981, it was the fastest growing company in the US history, dominating 80% of the video game market. Then... 1982 came. Kassar and game developers were like oil and water, they didn't mix, and the more talented staff evaporated and condensed in Activision, Imagic and other companies. That left Atari with a larger share of people who were too well-paid, too attached or too incompetent to go someplace else. Naturally, there was plenty of talent still remaining, but regardless of their skills, they were being rushed now, because corporate deadlines had to be met. And so, the old culture got pissed away. Marketing was still going full steam, though, and kept promising the most amazing experiences. And people believed it for a while. Warner chairman Steve Ross wrote in March 82, the long-term outlook of Warner Communications Incorporated has never been better. End quote. A week later, Atari released Todd Fry's console port of Pac-Man, and while it was a technical achievement and millions of cards got shipped out, and managers paid themselves bonuses, and Todd got a million in royalties, the game was actually unpleasant to play, and many people became acutely aware of it. Atari no longer meant quality. But Todd Fry is not the star of 1982. That honor belongs to Howard Scott Warshow. Warshow joined Atari in 1981, escaping from Hewlett Packard, and his first task was to port coin-op game Star Castle to the VCS. Star Castle, designed by Tim Skelly, had been released in 1980 by Cinematronics, the company that had pioneered vector graphics in the arcades with Space Wars, a spacewalk loan. Star Castle was an evolution of that concept, only instead of a duel, it was a single-player game, and instead of a star, the center of the screen had the Death Star. Well, almost. It was a computer-controlled turret, protected from the player's attacks by three shield rings. You could take out segments of those shields, like in Dave Needle's Star Trek cabinet, to expose the core, shoot it and destroy it, but any opening you created let the turret fire at you too. In addition, all this time you were being chased around the screen by three homing mines, so you had to keep moving. It was a fun game, popular, and Atari decided to port it to its console. Howard Warshow took the assignment, looked at Star Castle with its vector graphics colorized by an overlay, the way it played, the way it worked, and then he looked at what the VCS could do. 
Then he went back to his boss and said that if he ported the game as is, it would suck. He offered to rework it, keeping the core mechanisms, but adapting the rest to fit the console. And they let him. A guy who had been with the company for a few weeks said a direct port would suck, and they let him make whatever he thought was best. Warshow kept the need to destroy a shield to get to the target, but that target was now moving along the right edge of the screen instead of hanging out in the center, and the shield was made out of pixels the player's character had to shoot away or bite away. Yes, bite, because the game became insect-themed. Once the enemy was exposed, the finishing blow had to be dealt using a huge cannon that spent the entire game sliding along the left edge of the screen, following your character's motions. So you used your character to aim the shot, fired at yourself, and then had to dodge the blast, hopefully on its way to the enemy. Mind, the enemy was also attacking you, either with missiles or by turning into a swirl of pixels and hurling itself in your direction. Of course, that placed the enemy outside of its shield, and if you had good reflexes and nerves of steel, you could shoot the swirl in flight with the cannon and beat the level faster. Then you did it all again. The game had lots of strange twists to old mechanics, since Warshow was desperate to create something new, leave a mark, a legacy. Usually making something new for the sake of making something new ends in failure, but he pulled it off. He even used data from the ROM to generate some noise on the screen, thinking he would be the first to show players a game's code while it was running. But he was beaten to this by the prisoner. Howard also wanted to introduce new words to the English language, and he nearly didn't get to when marketing people informed him that the game's name had to be finalized within a few days, and they already had some titles in mind. He could not allow it, so he brainstormed overnight, called the main character Yar, and Yar lived in the Razark star system with other sentient spacefaring flies. The game's title would be Yar's Revenge, and to explain who this Yar was and why he was having a bad day, Warshow wrote a backstory for the game, submitted it to marketing, and told the guy, as a big secret and just don't, don't tell anyone, that Yar and Razak were named after Ray Kassar spelled backwards, and that it had been cleared with Ray, just, just don't tell anyone, okay? Q managerial ass-kissing. In fact, they even turned the backstory into a mini-comic book that was included with every copy of Yar's Revenge. And they had to credit Howard in that booklet, though he hid his initials in the game as well, obviously. When Yar's Revenge got released, a few months after Atari's Pac-Man, unlike Pac-Man, it was liked by the people who played it. It was liked so much that Yar's Revenge now is believed to be one of the very few games published by Atari for the VCS that were not straight arcade ports, and yet somehow managed to sell over a million copies. At least Howard says it did. Oddly enough, two more titles in this tiny group were also made by Howard Warshow, and also released in 1982. They probably should not have done that last part. Once the work on Yar's Revenge ended late in 81, Warshow was immediately put on his second assignment, 
a movie tie-in game for Raiders of the Lost Ark. While game developers had been borrowing themes and visuals from films for years, making something officially based on one was not a common practice yet. There had been John Dunn's Superman from 79, built on the prototype code of Robinette's adventure, but not much else. Parallel to the development of Raiders of the Lost Ark at Atari, Parker Brothers was developing its tie-in for Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, also for the VCS. It was released in 82 and received well, so we're witnessing the rise of movie games as a regular industry practice right here in the early 80s. Right before the crash. I mean, people were not soured on those games yet, but... Howard Warshow would fix that soon enough. In preparation to making the game, Warshow was taken to meet director Steven Spielberg in the flesh. They talked, Howard demonstrated Yar's revenge. In the end, he was given full creative control for Raiders of the Lost Ark. He could make it whichever way he pleased. Since the original Indiana Jones movie featured a lot of action and adventure, it made sense to base it on the existing action-adventure framework, cautiously left behind by Warren Robinette. But at this point adventure seemed too simple, at least to Howard, who again set out to prove himself to the world and create the best adventure game possible on the VCS. And he kinda did. Warshow added more rooms and more interactions between objects and more objects, he could afford to since they gave him 8 kilobytes of space as opposed to the 4 of adventure. The big issue were the controls. In adventure you picked up an object by walking over it, used it by poking it into enemies or doors, and dropped it when you pressed a button on the controller. You could only carry one thing, as Robinette chose not to have an inventory menu. This setup worked, yet you could not create complicated puzzles with it. Anything requiring several items, or, say, fighting and using another item, would become a juggling act. But what else can you do? The standard controller of the VCS, designed around the mid-70s arcade games, had a joystick and a button. Well, says Howard Scott Warshow, your console has two controller ports. Plug a second controller in and use both to play. And just like that, you have two joysticks and two buttons, and the developer is free to advance action-adventure games into the future. A pretty exciting future. You would use the first controller to move Indiana Jones on the screen with a stick, and the button made him use items. This is a big deal, since using items on command and not by rubbing them on things made it possible to implement an object the original adventure couldn't possibly handle. A gun. Also, the one-size-fits-all use-item button foreshadows the transformation that regular, non-action adventure likes are going to undertake once they get tired of parser interface. The second controller was put in charge of your inventory that you saw as a strip at the bottom of the screen at all times, a bit similar to Peter Oliphant's D&D handheld. Dr. Jones could carry up to six items, picking them up by walking over them and you tilted the second joystick to put a cursor under the item you wanted to use with the first controller, or press the button on the second controller to drop the item, and as a precaution, the item returned to where you'd got it originally. Otherwise, Dr. Jones ran the risk of becoming a dead man walking. 
With the enlarged inventory, puzzles could turn more complicated. You'd run around searching baskets to find random coins or grenades, then take the coins to the market where you could buy a few other items, or maybe find a way to the black market where they sold cartridges for your revolver. The grenade could be used to blast a hole in a wall, revealing a secret passage. Later in the game, you'd find a grappling hook that lets you pull yourself between the tops of tall mesas without falling down. Naturally, in your adventures you'd face hostile creatures too, notably snakes. It had to be snakes. Snakes could be rendered harmless if you carried and selected a magic flute available at the market, or you could whip the snakes away, but the whip required good aim and timing. Besides the snakes, you faced swarms of flies who briefly stunned you, a shining light that followed you around, a spider who dashed at you if you saw you, and a thief who stole your items and then sold them off-screen to buy bullets and shoot at you. Further complicating things was that some key items necessary for game progression appeared or not appeared in their designated rooms or baskets randomly. And that's just not good game design. Raiders of the Lost Ark was intentionally obscure when it came to scoring too, not telling you what made you gain or lose points at the end. That is, if you found the Ark and won. More likely, you'd get lost, fall off a mesa, get robbed and die, and Indiana Jones had only three lives per adventure. The game was frustrating and hard to figure out even if you had read the manual. And you absolutely had to read the manual, since it offered the only way to know what the icons for items in the rooms and in the inventory were supposed to represent, and how those items worked. I mean, it was very bold of War Show to try for an icon-based interface on a late 70s console before commercial microcomputers adopted graphical user interface, but it didn't work well. Also, Raiders of the Lost Ark may be the first original console game with dual-stick controls, before the industry got to actual dual-stick controllers in the 90s. And it also was very forward-thinking of Howard, but also incredibly clunky. Raiders took Warshow 8 months to develop, and was released in November 82, complete with easter eggs showing YAR and the HSW initials. It sold well, thanks to marketing, the novelty of movie-based games, and maybe even the complexity and obscurity of the game's mechanics, as consoles didn't offer much in that regard. Though, I'll let you in on a secret, it was the second best Indiana Jones-styled game of the year. Anyway, as work on Raiders of the Lost Ark was wrapping up in the summer of 82, the top management of Warner, and the industry as a whole, started getting overly excited about movie tie-ins. People seemed to be interested in them, and bought them nearly as well as arcade ports that used to dominate sales. Empire Strikes Back from Parker Brothers was a success, Raiders got many store orders. So, have we got any popular films we can turn into games? Oh, what luck! Our old friend Steven Spielberg has just released his E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Now, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, the video game is legendary and often named as the game that single-handedly killed the industry by the people who don't bother to do their research. But what I find the most fascinating about it is how nobody is responsible for it. Howard Warshow was told to make the game by Ray Kassar around August 82, 
and promised a massive compensation for his trouble, as he had been working for more than a year straight without any breaks, and E.T. had to be finished in time for the holiday season of 1982. That left Warshow with five weeks to develop the game. As a guy who always liked a challenge, he didn't mind. Coming into this from Raiders, he threw together a concept for another action-adventure game, and it took him to Spielberg, who this time was less enthusiastic. A kid supposed to figure it all out? Maybe a maze game, like Pac-Man? But Howard decided he knew better, he definitely knew his skills better, so he set out to make exactly as big and complicated a game as he could in five weeks. Warshow even threw a new concept in, as had become his custom. The six screens making up the game world were connected as if they were the sides of a cube. You controlled E.T., running around, collecting bits and pieces to assemble a phone and go home, evading people who try to grab you, and the pits. So many pits. At the end of the five weeks, the game worked, though it could have used more playtesting. It may have been too slow and brainy for children, and too primitive for older audiences, but the upper management thought it would sell anyway, just on the power of the movie license. And when E.T. came out in December 82, it did sell okay, for a short while. Howard Warshow did his best under the circumstances, but who created the circumstances? Who gave him this ridiculous deadline? Ray Kassar. However, according to Ray, he was just a middleman here, and the actual idea came from chairman of Warner, Steve Ross. It was Ross who thought E.T. such a hot property that Atari had to get involved, and who bought the license from Spielberg for something like $25 million to make console and arcade games. Kassar told him it would never work in the time frame, but Ross didn't listen. So, E.T. was being made by a programmer overworked stupid, under an impossible deadline set by a manager who knew it would not work, whose boss had told him to do it because he had made a deal with Spielberg, but Spielberg himself wasn't so sure the game as drafted would work. Well then, who is the fool who kept pushing forward? I guess it's Steve Ross, who had to do the popular thing to avoid questions from shareholders? Ross definitely made it worse by ordering a 5 million cartridge production run that could not possibly sell. Even if one out of every three VCS owners had bought one, it wouldn't have been enough. But what Atari produced, and what Atari could sell, had been entirely unrelated for quite a while at that point. It got bad in late 82 when the company unveiled the Atari 5200 Super System, a new console. This was also the point when they renamed the VCS to what it's better known as today, the Atari 2600. Was the 5200 twice as good as the 2600? No, not even close. The 5200 had the same internals as Atari's 8-bit computers, but slightly rearranged. It made sense, in a way, since those computers had sprung out of a cancelled console project, and now the console was coming back in late 1982. Designed in the late 70s. Atari was not the only company expecting to sell 70s consoles at this point. The Bally Professional Arcade that kept overheating in episode 2.2 made a comeback as the Astrocade around this time too. Unfortunately for both of them, they had to compete with the ColecoVision. 
Yes, we are having another vision. I've lost count which one it is. After the demise of its first consoles in the crash of 77, followed by a number of successful handheld games, Connecticut Leather Company was back with a vengeance. Developed in the 80s, the ColecoVision had the benefit of both its creators knowing the latest game trends and the costs of memory being far lower. So they made a system better suited to what the audiences wanted, offering better graphics and sound, and when it got released in the August of 82, the pack-in game was the first official home console port of Nintendo's Donkey Kong. What's not to like? Nothing, as it turned out. By the time the 5200 was released, the ColecoVision had already left it no chance to impress people. The trouble with the 5200 did not end there. People say a number of good games were released for the system, but between the games and the audience, there were the controllers. The controllers of the 5200 have gone down in history books as the first console controllers with a pause button. Not that big of an honor, since the ability to pause the action was a feature of the Fairchild Channel F, but the button happened to be on the console itself there. Everything besides the pause button on the standard 5200 controllers has been described as awful, not working, and why. The joysticks felt cheap and flimsy, they lacked precision, and broke down readily. Now, there was a keypad near the stick too, and you were supposed to place overlays on it, like you were playing your Microvision or Intellivision or ColecoVision, it also had a keypad. That part was industry standard. But what use is a console controller with a broken joystick? Rushing the 5200 out the door to counter the Coleco system, Atari didn't give this enough thought. And to make it even worse, in spite of their similar names, the 5200 could not play any of the 2600 cartridges. You know what could play the 2600 cards? The ColecoVision, if you bought expansion module number one. And early in 83, Mattel released the Intellivision 2, a cheaper revision of the old Intellivision, alongside which it offered the System Changer expansion that also lets you play your 2600 cards. Sure, Atari stomped its feet, but at that point most of the internals of the old VCS could be replaced with off-the-shelf components. So when somebody was looking to upgrade from a 2600, the 5200 would be the last console they'd consider, unless they were sad brand loyalists. For everyone else, getting one of the Visions would both open access to more games and let them keep the old library. Especially the ColecoVision, that one was almost in a generation of its own, two and a half. Atari tried to promote the 5200 running a TV commercial in January 83, during the Super Bowl broadcast, which is apparently an annual event when Americans gather to watch the most expensive ads of the year interrupted by some football game. Going by some statistics I've found, the ad must have cost around $350,000 just to place it, was seen by 77 million viewers, and largely ignored, judging by the fact that the lifetime sales of the 5200 are lower than the first-year sales of the ColecoVision. So, what have we got so far in our Causes of the Crash bin? The arcades being portrayed by the press as the tool of the devil and also boring as hell, 
A flood of bad third-party games and a matching lack of timely reviews to tell the consumer what was worth buying. First-party publishers failing to maintain quality in ways even excessive marketing could not compensate for. The brief movie tie-in fad resulting in a massive disappointment. Oh, what about handheld games? Well, they're no longer booming, and even in Japan, Nintendo managed to oversaturate and crash the game and watch market around 83, so Pocket Entertainment is not going to be bailing anyone out. It's turning out to be a common thread in all of this, isn't it? The massive overproduction of everything. The poster child for it was again Atari. I believe the company had been growing dissatisfied with its distributors ever since it tried to pressure them into not carrying Activision cartridges, and they laughed in Atari's face and said, you have no power here. And they were right, since Atari never expected third-party publishers to even exist, and distributor contracts had no clauses about them. Going by the What Went Wrong at Atari article ran in Infoworld in December 83, pretty close to the events, maybe too close, by the end of 82, Atari had had enough. There were both too many third-party publishers using Atari's own distribution networks, and also Atari started seeing too many returns of its stock. Things got ridiculous. First it got orders for millions of, say, Pac-Man cartridges, more orders than there were consoles in homes, the management reported huge profit growths, then it started seeing millions of cards coming back unsold, order cancellations, and all projections went down the drain. Some orders turned out to be duplicate, or placed by companies that had gone out of business and still stayed on the books. You can't work like this. On the 1st of November 1982, before both E.T. and the 5200, Atari sent its over a hundred distributors a notice that their contracts had been cancelled and that it would select a few exclusive distributors on December the 12th. Perhaps it would have made more sense to select them first and then cancel the rest, but Atari must have really wanted the old contracts gone. And this is where the management screwed up. No one who mattered had thought to do a very simple thing before announcing the cancellation, and that's auditing the existing distributors to find out exactly how much they had. Had Atari done that, it would have realized it no longer controlled 80% of the market and was rapidly approaching 40%. It would have also become aware just how much of its product was sitting unsold in warehouses, a handy thing to know, since by cancelling the contracts, the company invited every single distributor to return all of their Atari inventory for a full refund. And they did, even those who were about to be chosen as exclusive distributors, because, well, they didn't know. And some even found a way to return more than they had by calling the retailers they were supplying and offering them some new good games or hardware in exchange for a return of Atari inventory sitting on store shelves. Had Atari audited them in advance, it would have noticed the excess returns. So by pulling this stunt, Atari reduced its presence in retail and paid money for it. Here is where the timeline by Giselle Besson in the August 84 issue of Infoworld, with a few additions, offers a helpful summary. Once the tsunami of returns started, on the 8th of December 82, 
Warner, heavily dependent on Atari's success at the time to pay for failing vanity projects, reported a 56% drop in overall profits. Within a week, Warner's share price mimicked the profits chart by going from $54 to $30. Investors were getting scared. I mean, investors are simple creatures. They have sacks of money they put in magical boxes to take bigger sacks of money out of those boxes later. They have no idea what's going on inside those boxes. They only care about the sacks. Suddenly, the biggest box in the video game shelf is no longer making sacks grow as much. Investors start producing worried shrieks. Is it about to make their sacks shrink? Are the rest of the boxes on the shelf about to turn just as bad? Now they're taking the money they may have invested into game-related projects somewhere else, they sell stock, they run, and the entire industry would come to feel the effects in the second half of 83. Mind, investors were primed to run from Warner even before the news of reduced profits dropped in their enclosure. As an article in the New York Times informs me, on the 27th of November 1982, a former assistant treasurer of Warner was convicted of fraudulently arranging the company's purchase of stock in some theater in exchange for $170,000 in bribes that went into a secret cash fund at Warner. Chairman Steve Ross never showed his face at the trial and denied all knowledge, especially of the secret stash, but a successful prosecution of a top executive was troubling. Why wouldn't you sell off Warner stock? Meanwhile, even after the returns, distributors were still buried in cartridges of all those other companies. Around holiday season 82, not just Atari was worrying about selling inventory. Many stores started slashing the prices, setting on the path to the bargain bins of 83 David Crane so vividly remembers. And with hundreds of titles out there, it was no longer enough to release a new one and announce it. People could pick and choose, but there was very little helping them make that choice. Consoles are in 17% of American homes, but their owners are done buying new games. 1983 started with the 1983 video game crash already quietly underway. Atari and Warner were losing money fast. Returns and order cancellations continued. By the second quarter, Warner had lost more than $300 million, another $100 million vanished over the next quarter. But that's Warner as a whole. Luckily, the New York Times does have a figure specifically for Atari. After earning $323 million in 1982, over the first three quarters of 1983, Atari lost $536 million. They grow up so fast. Remember, nine years earlier, Atari was saved by half a million dollars from selling the Japanese branch to Namco. Now it was in the red for a thousand times as much. You just can't get this big without corporate management. Especially if we consider the theory pitched, I think, by Larry Kaplan, but don't quote him on that, because I didn't save it when I read it, and now I can't find the exact page where he said it in a somewhat veiled way. But Kaplan rejoined Atari with impeccable timing to watch it burn not from a front row seat, but as a background extra. He, at least I think it was he, explained the shocking losses not just by the refunds, but by the tendency of top executives to use company funds for, shall we say, 
personal projects? When the returns started coming in, the volume of refunds was inflated in the books to cover up the missing money. And it turned out there was a lot of money missing. It's a curious theory, but is it believable? I believe it is. The papers of the day portray Steve Ross as someone taking full advantage of his media empire, hanging out with popular musicians, shaking hands with film stars and directors, flying to and from his mansion in a helicopter, jetting across the country for business meetings, not knowing about the secret cash fund, the lot. There wasn't much glamour in game development, though, save for movie tie-ins offering more excuses to touch Steven Spielberg, so Atari was run by Ray Kassar. And Kassar ran it like his own private kingdom, setting various presidents against one another, making people serve him, rewarding loyalty to him. If you did Ray a solid, you could go far, literally. Kassar made one of his drivers director of sales for southern France. And those who didn't please Ray were replaced. It's good to be the king. And in December 82, 23 minutes before Warner announced its shrinking profits, Ray just happened to sell 5,000 shares of Warner's stock. And his buddy Dennis Groth, executive vice president and chief financial officer of Atari, just happened to sell nearly 11,000 Warner shares on November the 17th, 5,000 two days later, and over 6,000 on the 1st of December. They just felt like selling it. When the chief financial officer is dumping stock, you are in rats fleeing the ship mode. Only here, one of the rats was wearing the captain's hat. Both got pinned to the wall for this in September 83 by Securities and Exchange Commission, and Kassar just said, oh, sorry, and paid back the money he'd made on the sale, since with his regular pay, it was pocket change. In September 83, Ray was already a former chairman of Atari. He had resigned in July, pressured into it as a scapegoat for the miserable failure of E.T. But that's according to Kassar, who didn't mention the whole caught red-handed insider trading story much in his interviews. Kassar's replacement was a suit from Philip Morris, a tobacco company. That's how low they've fallen. Now, money did disappear in Bushnell's Atari as well, but a lot of that disappearing money was going to research and development projects like the beer-fetching robot. They were attempts to invent brand new products, and they were risky. However, Kassar had come from the textile industry, where totally new products are rare, and he cancelled most of the research, and then some more research, like the cosmos and its holograms. The kind of development work he liked was, say, how to manufacture the VCS three cents cheaper. But randomly mash hardware together on a hunch to see if it works? That wasn't Ray's way. Which explains why Atari had neither a really new console nor a new microcomputer that could save the company in 82-83. And it's not like they had no chance. The wasted opportunities were innumerable, and here's one of them. Between 1981 and 1984, Atari employed a dude we've run into before, Alan Curtis Kay. You know, the guy who proposed tablet computers for kids, whose team developed the graphical user interface at Xerox? That guy. He was at Atari, and the company did nothing to maybe develop a new microcomputer with a mouse-driven interface and icons on the screen. 
Atari had the talent, the facilities and the money to beat Apple to this. Instead, it did nothing. Its engineers were aware of Plato, Atari could have tried to launch a gaming network of some kind, but no. The cartridge capable of downloading new games off the air was cancelled too. Actually, in 83, clutching at straws, Atari announced a whole bunch of new products, we're totally working in new stuff, and then none of those products were released or even mentioned again, and any trust in the company's announcement was shot. Meanwhile, the rest of the video game industry was not quite aware yet of where it was all heading, as in April 83, Jim Levy of Activision, a reasonable guy, projected that the game market would soon triple in size. But the public was getting over video games fast. Arcades started closing down, cabinet sales plummeted, though Atari's coin-op division, with fewer than 200 employees, was the only part of the company showing profits at this point. It had just released Star Wars. Chuck E. Cheese's Pizza Time Theater fell on hard times. Specialized video game stores went out of business. The bargain bins did nothing. Non-specialized stores stopped ordering as many carts as they used to. In 83, Atari was sitting on millions of dollars of unsold inventory and still making more after shifting production to cheap foreign factories, but with every week there were fewer outlets to sell their product to. Which brings us to the uncredited article appearing in the September the 28th, 1983 issue of the New York Times. It's basically one paragraph, so let's have it in full. Atari parts are dumped. With the video game business gone sour, some manufacturers have been dumping their excess game cartridges on the market at depressed prices. Now, Atari Incorporated, the leading video game manufacturer, has taken dumping one step farther. The company has dumped 14 truckloads of discarded game cartridges and other computer equipment at the city landfill in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Guards kept reporters and spectators away from the area yesterday as workers poured concrete over the dumped merchandise. An Atari spokesman said the equipment came from Atari's plant in El Paso, Texas, which used to make video game cartridges, but has now been converted to recycling scrap. Atari lost 310.5 million in the second quarter, largely because of a sharp drop in video game sales. End quote. Does anything about this scream secret, probably didn't happen, or urban legend? No, right? But when some people decided to dig up the dump in 2014, the media buzz around it was that the concrete burial was an urban legend, and the excavation crew were out there to find the truth. The actual truth is that there was no mystery and someone simply wanted cheap PR. The burial was pretty public, Atari also had a bulldozer drive over the cartridges to crush them, saving face by saying that the games were defective. Yeah, right, some kids searched the landfill, found a few cards that escaped the slaughter, adopted them, stuck them into their consoles, and they worked perfectly. Another way Atari was cutting costs at the time was downsizing. The layoffs started under Kassar when in March 83, 1,700 people were let go, and they were not the management. In November, they fired 3,000 people, but there were still more. Some of those laid off departed stealing office equipment as one last expletive towards Warner. To Eric Wilmander, this time felt like being in the trenches. Every week, some of the people he knew disappeared. 
you just kept your head down and tried not to be seen. In March 84, the remaining employees gathered for a big dinner, thinking they had survived the worst. But layoffs resumed. Howard Warsher was there until the end, when in July 84, Warner sold Atari, and by that point the company had only a few hundred employees. And so, as the result of the crash, the largest video game company was falling apart, and most of the American video game market was shrinking like a deflated balloon. Instead of tripling in size, in 85 it dropped as low as one-tenth of a percent of its former volume, by some estimates. At the same time, Japan remained slightly more stable, although the handheld market crashed, and also between May and October 1983, seven different companies released their new consoles there, so it got silly for a while. Also, going by the Japanese Game Machine magazine from February 1984, in 82-83, Japanese police cracked down hard on video poker and other illegal gambling cabinets, regular video game machines got bad rap as the result, and the number of spots where you could even see an arcade machine went down by 25% in a single year. That's not exactly good for business. At least everything was fine in the world of microcomputers. Oh, wait. The ongoing price war. In the summer of 82, Commodore, already in a price war involving its VIC-20 computer, released a new micro, the Commodore 64. The C64 is a classic, but we'll get to why in later episodes. What matters now is Commodore's shamelessly aggressive marketing of the system. In 82 it was simple, look how much better the C64 is than any micro from the 70s, and you can buy it anywhere. In 83, however, as video games started to collapse quite visibly, Commodore cranked it up a notch. It ran ads saying you could get the computer for $200. If you read the fine print, it said you'd have to pay $400 first, but with your C64 you'd get a coupon worth $100 you could spend on professional software like a word processor for $90 and other things that didn't quite add up to $100, so you'd either waste some of the coupon or pay extra. Another hundred you'd get back in cash as a rebate from the factory, provided you sent them your old computer of pretty much any make, it didn't matter. No computer? No problem. You could also get a rebate for any console from Atari, Mattel or Coleco. Yes, right as the game industry was trying to sell games, any games, to someone, presumably console owners, Commodore was happy to take consoles off people's hands. I don't know how many took the company up on the offer and returned the console specifically, but the C64 was selling extremely well. Later, Commodore stopped the promo and started slashing prices to the point where you could just buy a C64 for $200, no strings attached. They were selling them as fast as they could produce them worldwide. IBM ignored the price war, Apple did too, it had a new computer coming and a Sony representative in the closet, while Atari didn't have much save for an announcement of a micro it never released, because everyone who could make it had been fired. However, a number of companies with a smaller share in the computer market felt threatened by Commodore, slashed their prices too, and went out of business, because Commodore had enough reserves to keep selling its inventory dirt cheap for longer. 
In January 84, the founder of Commodore and the survivor of Auschwitz, Jack Trammell, reported that his company had sold more than a billion dollars worth of products in 1983. The crash? What crash? A few days later, Trammell resigned over some internal differences and disappeared. Not for long. He resurfaced in July 84, leading a pack of investors who bought what was left of Atari for $240 million, knowing the company had another $400 million in debts. Trumel pruned the remnants of the staff, leaving the most competent 300, and proclaimed, I'm going to change this company from a democracy into a dictatorship. Being a man of his word, for once in his life, he filled the top managerial positions with himself and his sons. Old Atari was dead. Again. I totally count the purchase by Warner as the first death, because when Kassar came in and started cancelling research into new products, the mood changed, and there was no hope left for the company to maintain any kind of lead in the business long term. Of course, Ray himself proudly pointed it out that he resigned in 83, and Warner sold Atari a full year later, so he wasn't the one who totally wrecked it. If he was serious with this argument, it's even worse, as it means he had no idea what the consequences of his actions were for five years straight, and Atari is lucky to have survived for so long. So, that's the gist of the crash, it was a pretty loud event, and we'll be hearing its echoes all through this decade. The crash is often presented as the worst thing to have ever happened to the video game industry. So many companies were wiped out, the console market withered, the golden age of arcades was cut short, Atari died, it's all so tragic. Fortunately, this is Computer Game Evolution Podcast, not commiserating with capitalists who don't know how their market works after 1974 and 1977 podcast, so I'll say the industry had it coming. It failed the market and lost the confidence of both the investors and the consumers, not the other way around. And as for games, this was one of the best things ever to happen to them. See, the industry had married itself to the overall flow of games like Space Invaders or Pac-Man. They offered a challenge, you beat it, then you did it again, slightly faster or with more obstacles. Some games offered randomized elements, but for the most part, if you saw level 1, you saw level 21. Now, some people liked it. They'd work out a few approaches, start up the game on their console or put a quarter into a cabinet and start playing, letting themselves be absorbed by the increasing tempo, gain some lives, lose them all, and at the end feel energized, exhilarated. It's like a dance. And they'd have a local arcade rivalry for positions on the high-score tables or a collection of Activision patches. I get it. But not everyone was into it, and even long-time arcade patrons started asking for something different. Yet, if you went looking for variety, games with more story, progression, or at least some changing environments, you would not find much of that in the industry's output. It was bad for its growth, too. To expand without crashing the market, it needed to reach new audiences. And that's hard without more diversity. I mean, even when they realized girls could play games too, the titles made for them were just more of the same, but with cookies and caterpillars. Okay, Frogs was a new design, but no one remembers it. Luckily, the crash happened, and after it, the industry, and what's left of it, 
is going to be scared of going all-in on cloning major hits for a short while at least. That's good, if the industry is not scared, it's complacent, it doesn't risk experiments and keeps churning out the same games year after year. Another plus was that those thousands of people Atari's corporate firing squad was firing walked out the doors with Atari's office equipment and could immediately use it to start new small game companies, join existing ones, or they strolled into random office buildings in California and got hired as assembly language programmers. And they brought not just their skills, but their connections and the supposedly non-marketable ideas they discussed with their colleagues back in the Golden Age. In the post-crash wasteland, the remnants of the industry will try looking for new themes, new kinds of games. Well, new for the industry. Many will be picked up from microcomputer titles. A few overextended companies aside, microcomputer games were barely affected by the crash, and they are going to flourish in the 80s and early 90s. No, they won't be bringing in untold millions, but they will offer a steady enough income for a few companies that tower at the top of the video game industry today to earn reputation, stay in business and expand. And next time, we'll look at a company that rose when others were falling. This has been Computer Game Evolution. Thank you for listening, thanks to LegoFan94 for covering the hosting, and don't forget to support good causes.